We're back for another episode. It's Arjun Paliwal, Head of Research and Buyer's Agent here at Investikit Buyer's Agency. And uh, I wanted to chat to you about today's episode. So we're catching up with Tom Newman from Summit Finance WA. That's S-U-M-M-I-T. So two M's in the summit. And uh, Tom is actually a really specialized mortgage broker. He helps with investment properties and investors start scaling their property portfolios. And where he comes in is that really ability to become more creative, become more solution focused, and always come in with the thought of, wait, you're not stuck yet. There's an opportunity. Let me find something for you. And so there's very few out there who come with solutions and too many people out there who come with the problem. Look, if you're catching up with a mortgage broker and you're struggling to move from the second to third to the fourth, you probably already know your problems. You don't need another problems-based person to join you on the problem discovery. You need someone with solutions. And this is where I speak to Tom regularly because Tom has not just done it for a client, but multiple clients who've worked with us to be able to get their portfolio up that extra notch. And this is very, you know, uh, rare when it comes to certain mortgage brokers. And so Tom is one of those people who actually enjoys the complexity, right? And the complexity of finance and trying to find that solution. And so this is where I love chatting to people like that because they truly care about their clients. They truly care about uh, that solution finding mode. And I've probably mentioned the word solution now like a hundred times, but you know how important it is and it needs to be there because as they say, Property is a game of finance with houses thrown around. So tune into this episode as I dig into Tom's thoughts around investor psychology, around scaling, the thinking that the right broker should have, some creative ways as well to help. And then, of course, um, you know, some other tips that he's got in terms of helping grow that lending capacity and lending growth further. Uh, jump in. And if you want to reach out to Tom, you can catch him on LinkedIn, Tom Newman, or you can jump on summitfinancewa.com.au. Check him out. Tom, this has been a long time in the making, mate. Uh, thank you for joining me on an episode of the Investigate Podcast. No, you're welcome, mate. It's definitely been a couple of years in the making. So um, thanks for, for finally reaching out and um, allowing me to come on. Look, I mentioned it in the intro. I'll mention it once more here. Uh, we've collaborated on many clients when it comes to helping them, whether it be starting their portfolio, scale it with some significant moves, and then even high net worth starting to figure out what they need to do and how they get to the next level. And so I thought it'd be good instead of us having the cool chats behind the scenes or our clients getting the cool results, we come out and share it to the world, a couple of the secret sources, a couple of the practical tips, and also the psychology, the top clients that we often see have so that people who are on their way can start to bring this to life, right? So, mate, thank you again. But with regards to that, I think let's start off with the first part. There's investors who come into the journey wanting to achieve something. And there's investors who come to the journey actually achieve mm -hmm. something. And if we put income, the broker, the buyer's agent, everything aside, what are some of those things that you see psychologically certain investors have that work with you that do end up doing well? Or if they don't have it from the get-go, what are the changes you see as time goes on? That gets them to eventually get it. Would love to hand the mic to you on that. Yeah, sure. So I think really, uh, as you mentioned, there, there definitely is a clear disparity between between the, the two people. And some some get there by by sheer mistake or, or some might say luck. Um, others get there with a more clear defined purpose. And I think some of the ones, that, some of our clients that we've dealt with that that have kind of gone from where they thought of one, whether it was just one property into three or whether it was three into six or 10 or, or, or so on, was the biggest factor, I think, in that. Put aside all the crap, all the crap, the income and everything else, and and, and the, the lender policy. 
um, put that aside, the number one thing has been has been an end goal. Uh, and then everyone can have an end goal, but you've got to couple that with the actual action. Because there's so many there's so many uh, clients that, we, that we've dealt with in the past that have that have said, and it's common. You probably hear it all the time as well. I want ten properties in ten years. How much passive income have you got? Hundred grand. It's the absolute um, gold. You know, it's a gold plated solution. I think. Uh, and then said, whoever, by the way, said that whoever, by the way, that said the ten in ten years and the number hundred grand. Someone, can you find them for me? I want them on my marketing <laughs> team because they. Like every single person in Australia says, I want to pass a passive income of hundred grand. It's like, bang. Could you imagine how little, by the way, hundred grand will be in inflation, like 10, 20 years down the track? Exactly. And then when you kind of start to unpack that, you say, like, oh, okay, where does, where does the 10 properties come from? Well, uh, and, and it's, it's almost kind of like hats off to anyone. You've got a goal. That's great. But then you start to unpack that and go, well, what's, why 10? And it's not, it's, it's almost baseless because it's just a very, it's so commonly, um, um, I guess repeated that it just becomes like a like a self licking ice cream in the sense that everyone now it's 10, 10 properties, ten years at hundred grand. And then when you kind of get an Excel or whatever your strategy or whatever your sort of choice of platform is out and start actually extrapolating that, it might only be three. It could be twenty. It could be. It's it's um it's that's one aspect of of, of where um some of our clients have been able to get to going from like where they started at, let's say three properties to getting to sixes has been A, the, a, the goal and B, the, the actual action to get on with it. So you give them the borrowing capacity, you tell, you talk about the different strategies that between lender policy, structures, um, and ways that they could potentially better their own income um, to actually get to, to, to that six or 10 or whatever they want. Then you've kind of probably got the others that I wouldn't say they def, they don't have the goal. Everyone's got the goal that everyone wants, everyone wants to achieve the same sort of um, financial freedom. But it's really, we can structure a plan for that from the lending side, but they have to structure their own life plan, I suppose. Um, and that's where a lot of the times we see things fall over and the real disparity between those that end up ultimately getting on with something and those that sort of want all their ducks in a line before they actually start cracking on. And some of those ducks in a line are unrealistic. Um, as we just as we just said, that the ten properties, ten years, hundred grand for a lot of people is is particularly in this current lending environment is unrealistic. Yeah, I think what you've touched on is two core parts: is not just having a cool idea for the sake of it, but actually having some real clarity mm. behind it. And then the second thing that seems to be coming up is actually living the life of the person you want to be. Do you know what I mean? So uh, you're not going to get to a hundred grand passive, build a huge portfolio if you can't put a little bit away each month to be able to handle slightly higher rate environments to then even cover mortgages, right? Um, that's not going to connect. Like it's like the mindset's here, the goal's here, but the action's here. So I get you, right? Putting those two together. What about something I've noticed? And I wanted to just out of curiosity, see if you've noticed it. In some of my clients that we've worked with, I've noticed the clients that end up A, asking a thousand people for their opinion end up also displaying those traits to be stuck and they tend to achieve less as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying people shouldn't be informed, but what I mean by that is the person that goes, I want to pay for professional advice. Then I want to go to another person who's another professional who specializes in something else. Then I want to go into multiple forums. Then I want to go into um, questions that I ask my uncle and auntie, and then I want to go there. And then I want to make my own opinion. Research doesn't matter anymore. And so it's like, you know, do you see the same world in the finance world when you see certain clients who maybe don't do that and they set themselves apart? Um, yeah, I definitely would say would say that we do. I'm just trying to really think of 
a good example of where we've kind of had it day to day. Um, and I guess while you're thinking of that, maybe even also trying to imagine how, like, has that been different from the clients who've, like, have you noticed any performance differences from clients who've just been so, like you said, goal-driven, selective, mm. in going where they want to, understanding, and then instead of using opinions to guide them, they make decisions based on, I guess, where they want to go or the facts that they gain on one path. Yeah, yeah. I reckon, I think for the, the most common problem for those people that you often, you could probably say, like, and you, you probably coined the term maybe, the, that analysis paralysis, where they're, they're, there's so much in the world of property, there's so many books, there's so many, like, the, the, the thing I love about property is probably the actual negative in what we're saying here is that I like property because every book that you read about people that have, that have made good money and, and, and sort of self-made have done it through, generally through real estate as opposed to other investment options. But then because of that, there's so many different strategies, different ways that people have achieved that world through property. Yeah. So then there's obviously that confusion for a start. There's the type of asset. Do I go 50-50? Um, do I go residential? Do I go commercial? Then within that residential, do I go units, um, townhouses or, or houses? Do I do a development? Do I do a renovation? There is, and then even in the buyer's agency world, there is so many different types of buyer's agencies, so many different strategies that, that other people have, have, have um, had success on that it's no wonder that there's that there's people like that that you and I would see every day that can't make it a they can't make a decision and b there's too many decisions to be made um, to uh, too much information out there to really narrow down exactly what they're going to do. But that being said, I do find those that can ring a professional uh, that don't I mean shop around by all means. You've got to you've got to speak to the right people uh, and you've got to be able to if you don't gel with that person on on a on a sort of a, both a professional and a personal level then. Then forget about it. But you then have to make some sort of decision in your own life. No one's going to give you that silver platter. So when you ring someone, and whether it's your broker, whether it's your buyer's agent, whether it's your accountant, and you go, okay, I've had a chat with a few of them. We seem to be able to. Um, I, I like your your philosophy or whatever it may be. Um, once you go with them, then, then rely on what they're giving you. Rely on the information you've chosen for a reason. If they can give you, um, whether it's in my world, if I can give you some numbers for your borrowing capacity or the way that I think you can achieve certain things then take that stick with it and then and then see it through because the number of times that you that you pick up the phone and someone says especially in my case oh i've got another broker that i'm chatting to and straight away you just think okay well that's fine i don't mind call five of them this is my this is my chance to to give you my philosophy and and, and really sell myself and my and my sort of testing out my value propositions really but once they once you make the decision the ones that i've seen uh, go go far have been the ones that have stuck with that, stuck with the plan, and relied on on professional advice. Yeah, so we've we've touched on a few psychology related things that have helped, and um, biggest takeout for me is really just that in mind, end goal in mind, coming back down, and then you know taking those steps and living the lifestyle to achieve mm -hmm. that goal. Right. So I think in in that aspect now, when I think of the next part, what comes to my mind is the solutions you've deployed in helping many people start to scale a portfolio. And look, I know we could take this in so many different angles of what that looks like, but I think one of the hot topics around has definitely been the world of, you know, trust, the world of multi-banks and achieving things through different policies. For those who are new and suddenly maybe just go, wait, I thought you just go to your bank, go to the same bank and keep going there. Or I just thought you called the broker, asked them for the best rate, and they go get you capacity. How does that mindset differ from some of the solutions you've you've been applying for people? And could you maybe give us some insight on some of the solutions that actually help you start really scaling a portfolio? Mm -hmm. 
So I think the, the the number one thing, I mean, there's 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 thousands and thousands of brokers out there in Australia, and uh, everyone's got their own niche. From that niche, everyone's got their own software that they use. Some of them uh, stick with a handful of banks. Others have have uh, accreditations with tons. Um, and just because you have accreditations with forty banks doesn't mean that you're right loans through forty of them. No one typically does. Uh, where I've really quite relied on, like my background prior to, to broking with the military was uh, working in communication. So I've had, like, I definitely try to adopt some of that um, like newer uh, tech into the business. So straight away, whenever like the biggest wins that I've had with clients that, that, that ring up and say I'm all, I'm maxed out, I always just say bullshit. Yeah, and I say bullshit because in the nicest way possible because there is a solution for you. It's just whether you like the answer or not. And that and what I mean solely by that is. There's so many non-bank lenders in Australia. There's over 200, I think there's over 200 and something um, banks, what you would say. Uh, and what most will know is the, is the big four plus a couple of the second tiers and maybe one or two common names in the third tier lenders in the non-bank space. Uh, outside of that, yeah, there is so many banks. So I always, always say there, you will have the borrowing capacity. It's just whether or not you want to swallow the 8% interest rate. Uh, and we've done plenty of them. We've done plenty of eight, eight and a half rates with non-banks as a short-term strategy. And that's what I've stressed to every, every client we've been able to squeeze that, that last property out or that, that second last property into their portfolio. It's like, this is not a long-term solution. This is a, a short-term strategy to get a, a property over the line, very similar in the development world or the commercial world. You might be doing some sort of five-year um, short-term finance for an overall longer-term strategy of refinancing or when this happens, then we'll do something else. Um, so I think that's a, that's a quite big wins and being able to adopt that platform where we can, with our new, like 10 minutes on the phone with a client, chuck in all their figures and then see on, put their figures in the left-hand side, see on the right-hand side, all the banks, what their capacity is, what the rates are. That has been a, has been a game changer for me and my business. And it's been, I, I think there's been a real value added to clients because though that's the biggest win. When they ring up and say, I can't lend any more money, like let, give me five minutes. You know, on that note, Tom, one thing that stood out to me just in the, the language you've used so far has been not about finding the solution, but more so finding the solution and letting them know that you don't have to be here forever. Mm. You know I mean, that's a big part because some people assume that, hey, my broker's given me an 8% rate to buy this next place. Is that a good rate? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like imagine that. Mm -hmm. And that conversation immediately, it's like, well, no, it isn't. But what do you want to achieve? And I'm here to tell you that if you, the information you've given me, the trajectory you're on, where you want to go and where interest rates might be in the next year or two, this might not be a forever thing. And we're going to help you eventually come back to the parties where the money saving comes back again. And um, you've reminded me of something of the importance of an acquisition phase. And yep. when you're in an acquisition phase, it's not on your interest to buy properties forever. Like I tell my clients, I don't want you as my client forever to buy. I want you as my client for, to buy for the shortest period of time because the most I can build your asset base in the shortest period of time is the more compounding wealth you have over time, mm -hmm. the more you use inflation and leverage to your advantage. And then you can sit back and go, well, now we can just go into check-in phase. And you've hit that on the head there because you're like, well, if I equip you with the solution, so it's BS on your borrowing capacity being capped, are you willing to pay the cost for it? And are you willing to look at me and just know that this is temporary? It's not forever because we'll get you that extra place. We'll get you that extra one. So yeah, I just wanted to point that out. But sorry to interrupt. I know you were going to no, start on. I was going to, before I get onto that, I was just going to say like none of this, yes, your property purchase is a transaction, but none of it should just be a transaction. Like it's in the, in the sense that 
the entire thing, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, it's a long-term plan. It's not you, you buy the property and the transaction is done and the same, it should be the same with your broker, your accountant or your buyer's agent, whoever. That yes, there's a transaction in place, but with me, there, it's, there should be at least a plan of, as I mentioned, a short-term plan with, with a particular bank. And if it's not going, if it's, if it's not what you actually, what, what your intended solution was, it's a solution for a short period of time to get to where you want to be in the future, which whether that requires, you know, the whole, the whole thing is really requiring some level of sacrifice in some way, shape or form, whether it's second job, large, you know, trying, trying to really, really scrimp and save, whatever it is, you've, you've still got to be able to put that effort into, to sort of, um, to come up with that. So yeah, certainly. And, and then going into the next thing, which is the, which is the trust. Uh, I've definitely noticed since I, since I started the company and was really getting into the, into the world of finance, um, trusts were definitely, uh, a bit of a dark art in the, in the sense that it was, well, don't worry about the trust until you're onto your 10th property or until you're on the 5th property, whatever the case may be. And it was definitely considered one of those more really, really wealthy strategies that were that were um, deployed. But where I think there's some great wins, there's actually a lot of inherent risk involved, but, uh, and I can explain it later, but the, the thing with the trust is that the number of clients that ring up and ask the question, should I be buying in a trust? I can obviously uh, talk for days on, on, on the lending side of, of the trust, but then obviously the pros and cons in terms of the, the, the overall structure with your accountant is obviously an accountant question. But where it really comes into play is to be able to hold a, hold a property in an entity that, and, and particularly with the trust, you have the trustee. And with the trustee, you can have yourself or you can have a company. And the benefit of having the company is that's a legal entity that, that um, would hold the property on behalf of the trust. So where it actually helps with servicing, it doesn't increase your borrowing capacity. It doesn't decrease your borrowing capacity. If the certain metrics are met, if you can have a, if you can buy the property under the trust and the property is very uh, highly positively geared, you don't need to put any money into this trust anymore for it to continue to service its debts or for, or for the, the holding company. Now, most lenders, uh, if with an accountant's letter to verify that the trust covers itself, covers its own outgoings, without you having to contribute, then the debt you hold is only whatever you hold in your personal loan. So for a lot of people that might be your own occupied property, it could be your first two or three investment properties. But where we've been able to uh, uh, use this strategy effectively has been really getting from, particularly in these high rate environments, commonly uh, I'm finding most people are sort of maxing out at the moment between three and four properties. And it's really, really hard, again, to sort of take that next step to maybe you're going to a non-bank lender with a really high rate and it really kills the deal, or you're kind of just sitting there waiting for an event to happen, whether that be rates lowering or, or your income improving or something like that. Where we've been able to apply that effectively has been not where you've maxed out your borrowing capacity, but where you've got some left to be able to purchase your, your next one under this trust arrangement. And again, it can't just be any, any property, it has to be the right asset with the right cash flow with the, with, to be able to service its debts. We then be able to negate that, that entity's as, uh, income and its debts going forward. So a typical scenario where we've had this applied has been somebody that's got th um, three investment properties, maybe they have $500,000 of maximum borrowing capacity left with, with most of your sort of T1 and T2 lenders. They then purchase a property under, we would say, Arjun, Arjun's holding company, proprietary limited as trustee for Arjun's property trust. They buy that, that fourth property under that trust. It covers itself. Accountant verifies this through reviewing the financials, um, writes a letter. We can then go to the bank and, again, they'll say, how many, how many properties does this customer have? How much debt do they have? Well, they've still got three. 
they've got three properties, they've got three three rental incomes from this property, they've got three debts tied to the property. They do have a fourth, but the fourth is in the trust and it covers its, covers its own debts. We don't include the income of the trust, therefore we don't include the debt. Borrowing capacity stays at, stays at half a million dollars again at the start. Obviously, if rates go up, you're going to still have your borrowing capacity drop because you still have, um, you know, the standard servicing still applies, but you'd then be looking to borrow again under either a new trust or under the same trust that holds the, that holds the property. So that's been, that's been a real game changer for a fair few um, clients. I think the inherent risk is that obviously if you go to 10 banks with 10 trusts, with 10 um, company trustees, you can see how eventually you, you do sort of stack everything up like almost like a house of cards because you do get to the, you can get to the point where what if they're what if they're vacant for a longer period of time than you expect what if you don't have cash buffers in place to handle that that shortfall then the then the trust does need income from you and if your income is being just spread super thin by buying 10 properties under 10 trusts you can see how that's obviously um from the bank side they say hey man, we're perfect man but then from your side you need a you need more due diligence on your side than what, than what the bank has done on you. You've raised a good point. It's like everyone's looking for the hack to buy more, but can you handle more? You know, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. Like that sort yeah. of stuff, right? Like if you can't handle it, what's the point? I mean, all the strategies in the world are great, but you nailed it. It's like, hey, there is a risk that comes with it. I could buy you that extra one or two properties, use servicing smarts. You've got to be able to handle it. And not, like you said, there's going to be moments where even though it's positive, there could be that. Now, in this environment, this is me getting crafty, just trying to see how far this goes. In this environment, positive cash flow properties can be near impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be possible with the deposits you put down. They can be possible with the interest rate you get and the rent you get having to be super crazy. Um, or they could be possible over time, right? Someone might buy the property in a trust today couple of years of rent increases, debt staying the same, rent interest rates come down a bit, and suddenly it's positive. Can you make the trust positive? And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. I am a separate entity to the trust. Can I make a distribution from my other entity, ABC, whatever it is, or my business or myself as a person, make a distribution to the trust, call it an income, and then the accountant is then saying, well, technically, yes, this trust is trading profitably because incomes, rent, a line item, B distributions from other entities versus expenses, C the mortgage, the bills is still positive. Do the banks see it in that way? Or as soon as the money that's non-rent that comes into there doesn't count? Because my imagination here is that you're still lodging a tax return and the tax return says it's positive because income from A, income from B source equal more than expense. Mm -hmm. Just want to understand because to me, it still seems like it's covering itself, but just requires a few more hands to help. Yeah, I have seen, I have seen, and again, it sort of largely depends on what, what the accountant would be happy to, to um, class as sort of uh, to verify, essentially. Um, but I mean, if to answer the question in coming from my pocket, if it's coming from my pocket and I'm doing that as an income to the trust, then the banks are, are sort of asking, does this trust require any additional income from me? Ah, uh, yes. To service. So the answer would be, the answer would be no, then, 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 um, then that letter wouldn't be able to be written. Um, and if you if you then supply the tax returns, you'd obviously see that it's getting some income. And where's the income coming from? It's either coming from trading, renting, or from, from me. From other entities, uh, you could certainly do something like that. You could, you could certainly, I've seen uh, in the past uh, where 
even the individual at the start has put a large uh, amount of capital into the into the trust. So they might they might have had a hundred thousand dollar deposit property that they purchased only needed eighty thousand. They've taken twenty and just lent it to the trust. Then then you can I mean the trust has obviously a li a liability to to me, but it's got enough capital there to, to fund itself for the foreseeable future, which which is a tick. And again, mm. that's what I'm saying it definitely depends on on who is writing the letter and what they're comfortable writing because. If that entity does look after itself and needs nothing from me and it's got efficient capital, then all's happy. But ultimately, where there has been some stuff in the past, probably the last 12 months, uh, accountant, the, the whole industry has had letters coming back and forth from their, whoever, their, their industry group about writing letters that state the profitability of these trusts or um, certain holding companies. And they even want the future profitability. And as an accountant, an accountant's not going to write you what the future profitability of the trust is or the, or the company, holding company. Because A, how can they? And even if they even if they look through all your past financials, there's nothing to guarantee any business future finance, future profitability. So sometimes we've been able to get around this by simply just going back to the bank and saying, hey, the accountant's not going to write this. They're not going to write what the future profitability is. They're happy to write fact as of today, as, as on based on the past two years of tax returns they've lodged for the entity, but we can't comment on the future profitability because ultimately the liability then then lies with that that accountant company or with the or with the individual accountant and no one wants to take that risk to for somebody else. Yeah. And does this become a trust thing only or is this a company thing only? As a company thing as well. Like example, some people do buy properties in companies mm -hmm. alone. How, is that part of the game? Same thing. So any any other entity that is not you as an individual can can have this strategy applied. So if you're buying property under a company, maybe it's um it's solely set up for a holding as a holding um asset company, you can certainly do the same thing. So the the bank cares about you as an individual, what debts do you hold? When I run a credit check, I can have a look at all your debts from CCR reporting entities, like most of your major banks, second tier banks. I can see what what personal debt you have. Then at the very bottom of that report, I can see commercial inquiries and I can see that that you have a, uh, you might be a director of a particular company. Then all the bank says is, well, I'm not going to look over four companies. Can you can, can you just confirm the profitability or not the profitability? Sorry, can you just confirm that they're sort of looking after themselves, basically? Great points, mate. And I think uh, for anyone tuning into this, it's important to recognize Tom is giving the lending smarts, right? And when you're looking at the lending smarts, that's just one angle. If you want to make sure you're doubled up on the comfort or even just the knowledge or advice or guidance from the accounting side. I've actually made a three-part masterclass with the man himself, Jeremy Ionizili from KHI Partners. You can go back to some older episodes and see that three-part masterclass. We talk about uh, trusts. We talk about you know when it makes sense, when it doesn't make sense from an isolated accounting view. How good is it if you take the accounting view with the lending view and you start putting them together to create the decision of when's right. Now, Tom, we love giving some quick wins away to our audience. So they've got the psychology aspect today. They've got the aspect of trusts and different solutions and also just the multi-layers of banks giving hardcore importance on broker versus banker. But what about the last part? Some quick wins on borrowing capacity improvements people can make to A, look after their borrowing capacity better, but B, also squeezing that last asset outside of what you've mentioned before. So really one of the biggest things, I think if, if you're ever thinking about getting starting your property journey, the worst thing I think you can personally do is get a car loan or any sort of short-term personal loan. If you have an asset already, you are, in my opinion, you are far better off to, to use uh, equity in that asset to purchase, whether it's a smart buy or not, from a from a purely from a borrowing perspective, you're better off to have 
as minimal repayments per month on any debt as you can to extend your borrowing capacity. And interest only is a great way to do that with certain, with certain lenders on, on, on debt. Obviously, there's risks involved in every approach that you go, go with here. But the biggest killer that I ever see uh, in this industry is car loans. Car loans, personal loans, but mostly car loans. Because they're, they're, the reason why is because their term is so short. They're, they're maybe sixty to $70,000 and everyone loves a 200 series Land Cruiser. Um, and it's obviously more than that. But um, the repayments are, are over five years. They can go out to seven, but then you know you, you change the, the year in which you buy the car or the, how old the car is. Those, in some instances, those car loan uh, repayments per month are more than what having an owner-occupied mortgage repayment would be. Damn, so, yeah, yeah. So that as soon as you add that into a calculator, and you've got someone that can maybe afford four fifty to five hundred dollars as, as their borrowing capacity, you pop that in. Bam, they're down to two fifty. And the biggest thing is just like if you've got the savings there, wipe it out. There's smart times to have it and and borrow money for assets like that. And then there's times where you probably don't want to. So I think if you if you if you're thinking about getting one, think of a different way. Drive a crappy car. I've been driving a, a silver Kia Rio from 2008 for many 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 years uh, until I finally. Dude, dude, my best acquisitions and my most intense period of acquisitions was driving a one thousand dollar two thousand. I think it was 2000 yep. Mitsubishi Pajero. Yeah. Like my $1,000 Mitsubishi Pajero was the moment I had the best ones in my portfolio because yep. there ain't no car loans. Yeah, man. You just got to swallow the pride for a little bit. Maybe your ego, drive that crappy car for a bit. But hey, if you're putting, if you're putting a little bit of that, that um, everyone sort of says instant gratification off for a little bit further and you can say, man, I'm driving a crappy car and I didn't spend $70,000 um, cash on a, on a vehicle or whatever or financed. I just dumped it into property and I've got myself something that, that I can put onto an Excel spreadsheet and project out long-term and I'm going to have a passive income in five years, 10 years, 20 years time. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. And I also think that the biggest win comes from within as well in terms of your realistic expectations. Again, going back to the 10 in 10 years, you will, it is very unlikely that you will have a hundred grand passive income in five years time if you're starting out your journey. And there's obviously, um, you know, there's obviously rare rarities that happen, and people do achieve it. But I just think overall, if you took every all the, the average of all the all the clients that we deal with day to day, and I'm sure it's probably the same for yourself, getting to like 100 grand passive income requires a number of properties to be put, to be owned outright, or a, a lot of properties to be to be leveraged. Having a long term plan is way better and way more likely to succeed than having that short term. Have a goal, man. You know, Grant Cardone, man. He says straight away, you're like, you don't, you want to 10x any, every, every, every goal you have. So if you want to get five properties and have 100 grand in, in 10 years or 10 properties, then have the goal, but, but still be realistic in, in, in your process, in your reverse engineering or your process to get there. Made some great tips, Tom. Thank you for joining us on the show. And for those who are really listening and going, this guy speaks my language from an investor psychology to thinking long-term goal orientated to coming up with solutions to get me unstuck, but also like actually taking the time to work on the numbers and talk about pros and cons. How do people get in touch with you and your team? Uh, so you can either jump onto Facebook or on Facebook, Instagram, um, Summit Finance, you'll find me, you'll find the, the, the business. Um, yeah. Otherwise um, jump on to email info at summitfinancewa.com.au. Awesome, mate. Thank you so much again for your time. And uh, I'm sure everyone will love tuning into this. And as I said, collaborate on this episode with the previous episode uh, with Jeremy on the masterclass. Trust 
solutions from an accounting, from a finance. There are ways around this and Tom's spilled the beans. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Arjun.